Welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping within the United States. They have The Stand, It, Carrie, uh, Salem's Lot, Pet Cemetery, and many more popular titles in stock. So be sure to check out Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, constant listeners. Thank you for joining me this week on The Circle Opens. Um, I have just a few King-related things to discuss. Um, unfortunately, there's uh, been no recent updates to uh, the CBS All Access adaptation of The Stand. But we did get news that the small screen adaptation of Lysi's story, Lysi's story, I can never figure out how to say her name, Lysi, Lysi, Lysi's story, I bet that's it, Lysi's story sounds better than Lysi, <laughs> but it has a director, Pablo Lorraine, and I apologize if I've butchered that last name, uh, he directed the 2016 movie Jackie uh, that starred Natalie Portman. But he will direct all eight episodes of King's 2006 novel. Uh, Julianne Moore is starring as Lisey, and King will be writing all eight episodes as well. So that'll be really exciting um, to watch and look forward to. I am determined to read this book before then. Um, my sister keeps telling me to read Lisey's story, read Lisey's story. And I just, I, I have so many of his books still left on my to be read list. Um, but I'm hoping to get that read before the series comes out so I can uh, watch without any major spoilers. I haven't watched the uh, Mercedes television show yet um, because I did read uh, Mr. Mercedes and Finders Keepers, but I still have to read End of Watch, even though I've read The Outsider. Uh, so that kind of spoiled me, but I, it didn't bother me. It won't stop me from reading it, but I digress. I'm starting to ramble about my King uh, list of things to read. So there's that news. And also, um, Andy and Barbara Muschietti of It Chapters 1 and 2 will be producing an adaptation of Roadwork, the novel that Stephen King wrote under the name of Richard Bachman. Um, Barbara Muschietti said they should be shooting at the beginning of 2020. And I found this really interesting. Um, I know that they had wanted to uh, produce and do the uh, new update of Pet Cemetery, um, but that didn't work out. And uh, Roadwork is certainly, I've, I've never read ro- Roadwork. Um, my, I think the only Bachman book I've read was The Long Walk, which was is one of my top five King novels of all time. But Roadwork seems to be one of those books that um, people generally don't like. Um, I find it interesting that out of all of the works uh, that they could potentially grab onto and produce, they would pick Roadwork. But who knows? You know, some, maybe the adaptation uh, will be better than the novel. I can't really give a uh, a real thought on that because I haven't read the book. And who knows? You know, sometimes I see a lot of um, negative reviews <coughs> excuse me negative reviews of King's work um, some of his novels and then I'll read them and I end up loving them so <laughs> who knows Roadwork might be one of my favorites once I get around to reading that so that should be coming in the next couple of years and speaking of it I went last Saturday night to see the it chapter one re-release in theaters where they showed eight minutes of footage from it chapter two at the end of the movie And the scene was the 
Jade of the Orient uh, restaurant scene. And I'm pretty sure you probably find this on Reddit or something now. But um, obviously this was not the entire scene. But we got to see the losers uh, come together and be reacquainted. And the footage made me really optimistic for Chapter 2. Um, part of what I loved so much about Chapter 1 was the chemistry between the young cast. It was such an important part of the book because King wrote the kids and their friendship so well um, that you really cared about their fate. And so I felt like the adult cast needed to share that same kind of chemistry and show they had a history, even if they had been separated uh, for 20-something years. And the Jade of the Orient scene really showcased this. It was funny, and Bill Hader is perfect as Richie. Um, it was very lighthearted until the end when the fortune cookies came out, but I will leave it there <laughs> not to spoil anybody. And that being said, um, I already have my tickets for September 6th, so I cannot wait to experience the end of it. And before we begin, um, talking about chapter 13 of the stand, I want to give you guys a quick recap of last week in chapter 12, we got to witness a rather brutal confrontation between Fran and her mother, Carla, after Fran told Carla that she was pregnant. The confrontation shifted from Fran and Carla to Carla and Fran's father, Peter. Needless to say, Carla is not thrilled about becoming a grandmother, and the chapter ended with Carla retreating to her bedroom, uh, leaving Fran and Peter to ponder whether or not Carla would eventually come around to... Um, the fact that Fran is going to have and keep this baby. That brings us to chapter 13. We are back in Atlanta with Stu Redman. And if you remember in chapter 7, Stu had been locked in a room, um, not necessarily in a hospital, but somewhere he doesn't know where. And he's dealing with doctors and nurses and scientists who went to poke and prod at him to try and figure out why he's not sick with the super flu. Stan, uh, Stan, see, I'm still thinking about it. Stu <laughs> then refused to cooperate uh, until he spoke with somebody who could give him real answers. Chapter 7 ended with the line that it was 40 hours before they sent anyone with answers. And that's where we are today. 40 hours after Stu demanded to see someone who would talk, uh, they send Dick Dietz. And Dietz enters the room and Stu notices that he's not wearing one of the heavy-duty protective suits that the others had been wearing coming in and out of his room. Dietz points out that Stu isn't getting sick, according to Geraldo, a guinea pig in the cage just outside of Stu's room. The guinea pig, Dietz explains, has been breathing the same air as Stu for the past three days. Um, they assume that if Stu had the flu, Geraldo would be dead by now. And that being said... Dietz is still wearing a nose filter because, you know, you can never be too careful. Stu wants to know what kind of illness he has, uh, but considering the tests and experiments, Denninger and the others have come to the conclusion that he doesn't have anything at all. When Stu asks what the others have, Dietz tells him that it's classified information, as is how Campion got it. And so, you know, Dietz is not giving Stu much of anything, uh, but Stu opts to give his own theory. He says, my guess is that he was in the army and there was an accident someplace, like what happened to those sheep in Utah 30 years ago, only a lot worse. And I like this little line because it's a, a nice little um, homage to the Dugway sheep incident in 1968, where about, um, what was it, like 6,000 sheep were killed by a chemical weapons testing uh, at a base nearby. 
And that was one of the stories, if you guys remember, that inspired King to write The Stand in the first place. Uh, He had wondered to himself after hearing about this, what if the wind had been blowing um, towards Salt Lake City? Um, So I really like this little little line in here that Stu gets to give about the sheep. Um, It's canon in the Stephen King universe. (laughs) So Dietz isn't giving much to Stu. In fact, he thinks Stu should be glad that they're not telling him more than they are. Dietz essentially tells Stu that he's as classified as the others. He might as well have just disappeared. Um, Because if the big guys knew about Stu, they might decide the safest thing would be to eliminate him altogether. This particular fact uh, stuns Stu. But when Dietz tells him this is why they need his cooperation, Stu asks Dietz where the people are that came to Atlanta um, with him. And this is pretty rough because Dietz pulls out a sheet of paper and reads it. Victor Palfrey, deceased. Norman Brewitt, Robert Brewitt, deceased. Thomas Wanamaker, deceased. Ralph Hodges, Bert Hodges, Cheryl Hodges, deceased. Christian Ortega, deceased. Anthony Leominster, deceased. Stu's mind is reeling with this information, but he's focused on um, Hodges' family, Ralph Hodges' family. He cannot believe his entire family is dead. Um, Dietz tells him that Ava uh, Hodges, who is four years old, is still alive. But when Stu asks how she's doing, of course, Dietz tells him it's classified. And you know what? Stu has had enough. He rightfully loses his temper and attacks Dietz by shaking him fairly violently. Um, He asks the question that we as readers have been asking since the prologue when Campion woke up his wife Sally and his daughter baby LaVon and sped away from the biological weapons facility in California. He asks, what the fuck did you people do? The door opens and some other personnel comes in to help Dietz, but Dietz keeps his cool. He yells at them to leave, and when they follow his orders, Stu lets go of Dietz, who... uh, it says that he feel he looks compassionate. He looks like he understands Stu's uh, anger and his despair. Um, but Dietz tells him that he's not the reason Stu is in that room. Dietz partly blames Campion um, for all of this happening, but Dietz understands that anyone in Campion's position probably would have run too, himself included. It was a technical slip-up that allowed this to happen. Stu wants to know who is really responsible And Dietz replies with nobody. He says, quote, On this one, the responsibility spreads in so many directions that it's invisible. It was an accident. It could have happened in any number of ways. And I have to interject here and just, this is the terrifying part of this novel for me, is it was not something that was purposely released. It was not an attack by a foreign government. It was an accident. It was something that our government was creating in a secret facility in California, and just one human error created a um, an effect of so many other errors and just technical slip-ups, as Dietz said. It's something that could easily happen, It's and that is what, to me, is so scary about this novel, um, that it, I've said this so many times before, I know, but it could happen just one person has to fuck up and then we're all fucked. Excuse my language. So anyway, uh, Stu asks here about um, Hap and Hank Carmichael, Lila Brewitt, 
But Dietz, of course, uh, I'm getting tired of seeing this. It's classified. He offers uh, now to let Stu shake him again, if that will make him feel better. Um, but you know what? Stu just gives him a look, and this kind of uh, forces Dietz to crumble a little bit. Uh, Dietz tells him finally that those people are alive and that he can see them in time. Uh, Stu asks about Arnett, which is still quarantined. Stu asks, who's dead? Nobody. Stu thinks he's lying, Dietz, and Dietz is sorry that he thinks so. Dietz doesn't know when Stu will be able to leave. Dietz explains that Stu doesn't have the flu, and they want to know why. If they can know why Stu is immune, then they may be able to stop this. So Stu asks for something fairly simple. You know, he just wants to shave. Um, Dietz says he can't do it on his own, and Stu realizes Dietz must think he's going to cut his own throat. And then Stu seems to realize that he's very valuable. He's immune, and they need him alive. So he starts to cough, pretending that he's suddenly come on with a cold. (laughs) And this is what freaks Dietz out more than Stu attacking him. Uh, Dietz is off the bed and at the door in a second, and he's trying desperately to get out of the room. But then Stu reveals that he was faking. When Dietz asks why Stu would do something like that, Stu responds, sorry, that's classified. So Dietz calls him a shit son of a bitch. But hey, I think Dietz knew that he had it coming. Um, Stu tells Dietz that they can run their tests. And that night he has a dream. He was standing on a country road at the precise place where the black hot top gave up to the bone white dirt. A blazing summer sun shone down. On both sides of the road, there was green corn, and it stretched away endlessly. There was a sign, but it was dusty, and he couldn't read it. There was the sound of crows, harsh and far away. Closer by, someone was playing an acoustic guitar, finger-picking it. Vic Palfrey had been a picker, and it was a fine sound. This is where I ought to go, Stu thought dimly. Yeah, this is the place, all right. What was that tune? Beautiful Zion, the fields of my father's home, sweet by and by? Some hymn he couldn't remember from his childhood, something he associated with full immersion and picnic lunches, but he couldn't remember which one. Then the music stopped. A cloud came over the sun. He began to be afraid. He began to feel like there was something terrible, something worse than plague, fire, or earthquake. Something was in the corn, and it was watching him. Something dark was in the corn. He looked and saw two burning red eyes far back in the shadows far back in the corn. Those eyes filled him with the paralyzed, hopeless horror that the hens feel for the weasel. Him, he thought, the man with no face. Oh, dear God. Oh, dear God, no. Then the dream was fading, and he woke with feelings of disquiet, dislocation, and relief. He went to the bathroom and then to his window. He looked out at the moon. He went back to bed, but it was an hour before he got back to sleep. All that corn, he thought sleepily. Must have been Iowa or Nebraska, maybe northern Kansas. But he had never been in any of those places in his life. That takes us to the end of chapter 13. And Stu finally gets some answers. Um, Not enough, but he essentially finds out that most of the people brought to Atlanta with him are dead. He also discovers he's truly immune to the super flu. And the test that they're running on him now is to find out why. Stu is valuable. He has some power here. 
Um, and we also get a little glimpse of his uh, personality, more so than we've already seen. Um, he's compassionate and he cares about the people he came to Atlanta with. He has a history with almost all of them in some, uh, you know, some way or another. Uh, small towns like Arnett, you know, people even just coming through to, for deliveries. He knows these people. He's distraught when he hears that they've died. Uh, even the children have died. And he's fairly, he's mild-mannered asking his questions. He's very straightforward, but he has a temper too. And he loses control of it when he realizes what they've done. It's something horrible. They've unleashed something that could very well wipe out half of humanity, if not all of humanity. And he's also not above faking superflu to scare the shit out of Dietz, uh, which was one of my favorite parts of this chapter. Um, finally, there's some comeuppance here. <laughs> he gets something. Um, he has to spend his day, if he has to spend his days locked up and terrified, uh, why not extend some of that feeling to someone else for a moment, just so they get a taste of what he's going through? Um, and we get a glimpse into what is to come with Stu's dream. A country road, rows of green corn, a sign that Stu can't read, not yet, uh, but he knows he needs to get there. Um, there's someone playing a guitar nearby, something soothing, a hymn. The good feeling is quickly taken over by something more sinister and terrifying. There's, you know, the dark cloud over the sun. He feels fear, and he knows there's something in the corn, and something is watching him. The man with no face. And so there's something else at play now, something bigger than Stu, something bigger than Captain Trips. There's something in the corn, and we don't know what it is yet, but that will be coming soon. Um, I love this chapter. I love the pacing of it. Uh, I like how King continues to take us out, of, out into the world where Fran and Nick and Larry are living their lives, as complicated as they may be before bringing us back to Stu, who is isolated and alone, and he is essentially a prisoner, as everyone he knows is dying or already dead. Uh, the other characters are dealing with a lot. You know, Fran with her unexpected pregnancy, Nick getting beat up and robbed in a strange town, Larry is on the run and hiding from his disastrous life decisions. And I'm not, you know, not to say one trauma is worse than the other, but Stu is right in the middle of the beginning stages of the superflu. And he's handling it the best that he can in the situation. I think he's showing a lot, um, a lot of traits that uh, tell me that he's going to be a leader later in this novel. Um, and how will the others deal with what he's already going through? We already know that Captain Trips uh, has spread to Arkansas, where uh, Nick is currently, and also New York City with Larry. Um, we haven't seen any hints of the flu yet in Maine with Fran. But I have a feeling that's coming soon. Um, I just, this adds a whole new element to the story. Because before this chapter, it was fairly cut and dry. It was a uh, really bad biological weapon that has been unleashed onto the country. Uh, people are getting sick and dying. Um, everyone kind of has their own personal stuff going on. But it's been, you know, nothing supernatural about it. But now we get Stu's dream, and this dream just adds a whole new element to the story. Um, it's kind of, he, we already get that glimpse of good and evil, the good part of Stu's dream with the music and the corn and the sunshine, and then the evil, 
with the cloud and the corn and the red eyes and the man with no face. So I think that this is perfectly positioned in the story because at this point, I don't know about you guys, but I care about Stu. I care about Fran and Larry and Nick, and I'm excited to see uh, what happens next. Next week, we will talk about another short chapter, chapter 14, but we're going to get kind of a a new glimpse into Captain Trips because we're going to get uh, this chapter is from Colonel Dietz's point of view as he records the report directly after talking with Stu in chapter 13. And that's the end of this episode. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening, whether you are new to the podcast or have been with me since episode one slash the prologue. And if you have time or you feel the desire to, it would be great if you could leave me a rating and review on iTunes. Um, Or if you want to send any feedback, good or bad, um, if you just want to talk about the stand or this chapter, um, you can email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. And you can find me on social media at The Circle Opens uh, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So uh, that's it, you guys. Uh, Thank you again for listening. And M-O-O-N, that spells. See you guys next week.